custodians of the planet, acknowledge and pays respect to the past, present and future traditional custodians and elders of this nation and the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. You are with Custodians of the Planet. I'm Denise Yildiz. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to planetary challenges and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. Today, we will delve into a topic that is incredibly important but not talked about often enough. Indigenous people and intellectual property rights. To begin with, property rights originate from a Western understanding of ownership. So the concept of intellectual property rights relates to the ownership of ideas, designs, inventions and expressions and the exclusive right to use and earn money from it. Intellectual property rights can cover a lot of ground. The first things that might come to mind are software, medicine, songs and movies and words like copyright, patent and trademark. But it's not limited to that. Intellectual property also encompasses traditional art and culture of indigenous people. Today, Professor Daniel Robinson is here with me. Daniel has a background in human geography, environmental science and environmental law. Daniel's research focuses on the regulation of nature and knowledge. He has acted as a researcher and policy advisor on projects for the International Center for Trade and Sustainable Development and with their joint project with the United Nations Development Program and Global Environment Facility, Natural Justice, the Union for Ethical Biotrade, the National Human Rights Commission of Thailand, amongst others. Daniel, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Firstly, can you tell us a bit about your current research focus and what sparked your interest or desire to work in this field? Yeah, sure. So I work a lot on, you know, what we might call in Australia, bush foods and medicines or, or therapeutics. I'm really interested in Indigenous people's traditional use of these things, but also their advancement into modern uses of these things. And what we're particularly interested in is making sure that Indigenous people are involved in the development of those products that, that end up on the market, but also that their intellectual contributions are valued appropriately and, and protected and promoted. And I guess to explain this, like there's, there's been a long progression how I ended up working in this space. And, and I'm, a, I'm actually not a lawyer, and, and a lot of people think that I might be a lawyer, but I've studied some law in this space. I've got a diploma in environmental law and have studied some IP law. But I actually got into this space more from the environmental field, and I was studying those master's courses and looking at the Convention on Biological Diversity. And it, it talks about the need to have fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from the utilisation of genetic resources and associated traditional knowledge. And it, it's emphasising basically 
the need to to recognize indigenous contributions to new products new bush foods new new medicines new new um, pharmaceuticals agricultural products a whole range of things foods and beverages industrial products you know the, the list goes on and on and it it's was kind of sparked by concern about biopiracy which i'm sure we'll we'll continue to talk about and I guess I, I started my PhD sort of looking at this issue. I was really concerned and interested in this issue of biopiracy, where Indigenous people's knowledge was being appropriated. And I, I started that work in Thailand with the Human Rights Commission of Thailand before sort of going on during my PhD as well to work in Geneva as a, as a trade and environment or a trade and sustainable development journalist. And, and that was with a, a think tank called the International Centre for Trade and Sustainable Development. So I was really lucky, actually, you know, it was the right time and right place. I got to work with amazing people in Thailand, including the Human Rights Commission of Thailand, but also local communities that, that were using traditional medicines and seeking to protect and promote them. So working at the local and national level, but then also at the international level following discussions in the World Trade Organization and UN organizations about these issues at that global level, because it's become a really global concern since the early 1990s when that we had that convention on biodiversity. Yeah. So it's evolved from there, I guess. And I still work on, on these issues in Australia, the Pacific, and a bit in Asia still as well and other places too. Sounds really interesting. And I think it is important that we discuss terminology early on too. How do you explain intellectual property rights? Yeah, good question. Like you said in the introduction, there's a whole range of different intellectual property rights. And I agree with what you said in the introduction that we need to think more laterally about intellectual property or, or at least we need to think critically about it. So the typical intellectual property rights that we think about are things like copyright, probably the one people are most familiar with, or trademarks. Trademarks, you know, are, are protections of a, a logo and design, and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Also patents, which provide sort of 20 to 25-year monopolies for different inventions. And I guess that's the space that I work in most, looking at the use of patent monopolies to to protect so-called innovation. So I guess with something like in patent right, there's a number of criterion that the applicant has to fulfill. So it has to be a new, something new, not already in existence. And it has to have an inventive step. So it has to be not something also obvious to people already in the field. And then it has to be useful. And the first two criterion are the, the key ones. And sometimes we, we encounter this issue where people are claiming patent rights, where something isn't necessarily new. It's been, there's a new discovery maybe, or, or people might claim that it's a new discovery, but really it's an old, it's an older idea. And, and that idea often comes from farmers groups or indigenous groups. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of global examples I can talk about, but yeah, sometimes I also work on, you know, sometimes the cases we look at, I guess, we look at case studies where there's a particular species that might be used and, and there might be a biopiracy concern, basically, where intellectual property rights might be used in a, in a way that appropriates Indigenous knowledge without appropriate recognition of the contribution of that knowledge and of the Indigenous innovations as well. But, you know, without consent, without compensation or without an agreement, without sharing or without filing jointly for that intellectual property. 
So like you said as well, we could think about Indigenous peoples and also farmers groups globally as having made intellectual contributions to the development of a lot of these new products. They, you might think of them as having their own intellectual property or inter intellectual innovation. It's just that they may not have filed them through this formal system of rights. And sometimes that's because they believe that they it might be based on customary law you know where they where they have a communal contribution to the development say of a, of a rice variety in south asia or southeast asia mm. often it's not one farmer but many farmers that contribute to the development of a, a modified or a new variety of rice that has you know unique flavor and and distinctiveness so yeah there's there's different groups around the world different indigenous peoples and farmers groups have different perspectives on what we should or should not be able to own. And, and so there's quite a lot of activism and concern around the use of intellectual property to claim innovations and protections over things that farmers groups or Indigenous peoples might have contributed to. Yeah, you, you just said biopiracy. Can you tell us what is biopiracy? And can you give an example of it? Yeah, definitely. So my first book after my PhD was about biopiracy. And there's no simple legal definition, actually, but it's it sort of it does stem from that convention on biodiversity to some extent, and also from other international negotiations globally and, and agreements. It's really where you have researchers that have come and utilized a genetic resource or a biological resource, and in some cases the associated traditional knowledge or indigenous knowledge relating to that resource. And there are different types of biopiracy. So some have, may have used that without permission and without benefit sharing. So I call that uh, a misappropriation type biopiracy. And then there's other ones where that continues and there's a, a patent or another form of intellectual property right filed relating to the use of that biological resource and that knowledge without compensation and without prior informed consent. And people often say free prior informed consent. So using this knowledge and using the resource without getting that consent first, having a discussion with um, the providers of the resource. In, in the Convention on Biodiversity, they talk a lot about providers and, and centres of origin for the resource and those who have knowledge of the uses of that resource. So we're particularly concerned where researchers might be free riding on intellectual contributions of Indigenous peoples, local communities and, and farmers groups that they, they've done some of the contributions that then someone else is taking advantage of basically and, and using potentially intellectual property rights to get monopoly rights over those as well. So those, is, those are the sort of circumstances where we see biopiracy. And it's, like I said, there's no legal definition, but there's a number of activist groups that have talked about biopiracy. And Vandana Shiva in India, for example, is, is very famous for talking about biopiracy. There's a group called the E2C group, um, which is an NGO, but it's actually become a bit more of a global discourse and it comes up in international negotiations, mm -hmm. like I said, in the Convention on Biodiversity, but also in, in forums in Geneva, like the World Intellectual Property Organization. And there's, there's probably lots of examples. So I talk about some in my, my first book. There's a few sort of early cases where there were attempts to file patents on basmati rice lines and grains in India. And that's one that Vandana Shiva talks about. And that's sort of widely been called a, a biopiracy case by, by those groups. And, you know, 
what happened was there was ultimately a challenge on that patent in the United States. It was a bunch of US researchers. And some of the claims that they were making about basmati rice lidens and grains were deleted from that patent subsequently. So after it going to court, they were they were told that they had to remove some of the claims. And in that particular case, you know, there was quite a bit of evidence of the contribution of breeders and farmers in India towards the development of basmati. I mean, we think about basmati rice, you, you do think about South Asia, right? You, yeah. you don't think about US farmers. <laughs> and, and that's been developed over a couple of hundred years, in, at least in India. So there's examples like that. There's other examples from America and Latin America where there's one called the yellow nunabing case. And that was a really interesting one where a US company had filed for a patent and I believe a trademark as well relating to enola beans, yellow enola beans. And a bunch of geneticists actually did some DNA testing on the, the beans and found they, they were genetically identical to beans produced by Mexican farmers. And so that was challenged by a bunch of US importers who, who had, had been threatened by the company and basically their trade had ceased and it was affecting Mexican farmers. So that was a really dramatic case. And ultimately, it was overturned with, with some of that evidence. So, so the patent was revoked. So they, those are a few sort of examples. And, and we still work on this and, and we find lots of new cases and that might be of concern or, or similar. Yeah, it sounds like it's a mixture of customary law, institutional ethics and environmental rights, right? Yeah, it's a complex overlapping field. There's property law and intellectual property law. Yeah. Indigenous customary law definitely is, is one area we're really um, interested in and, and in Indigenous customary rights or responsibilities to plants and even animal species too. Yeah, so there's an environmental law too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what kind of institutions regulate or protect against biopiracy then? Good question. There's, there, there aren't many. <laughs> so what we have, we have the Convention on Biodiversity is, is one of the main ones. And then we have this new product, relatively new protocol called the Nagoya Protocol on access and benefit sharing. So it talks about the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising from the use of genetic resources and associated traditional knowledge. Use is the word traditional, but I prefer the word indigenous knowledge or or the knowledge of Indigenous peoples and local communities, etc. So that Nagoya Protocol is the global agreement, and there are 125 parties, country parties, that have ratified that. So it's becoming quite mainstream globally. And the Convention on Biodiversity before that has, every country in the world has ratified that, except for the United States of America. So it's the only one outstanding. So in, with the Nagoya Protocol, you know, countries like Australia haven't ratified it yet, but we've signed. So there was some intention and, and there have been some consultations about it. And because we have a federal system, it's interesting in Australia, a number of states and territories have actively sought to be Nagoya compliant, in a sense, to have biodiversity regulations that recognise that when people are accessing the biological resources, they should have a permit and they should be getting permission from traditional owners where it's native title land or Aboriginal land, freehold land or other types of land tenure. So there's some, in Australia, there's been some progress towards that under environmental laws, uh, biodiversity laws. 
There's also some activity in intellectual property. So there's negotiations about potentially limiting in intellectual property laws. So, or, or having transparency mechanisms. Like in a patent law, you could have something called a disclosure of origin requirement. So that could mean when you apply for a patent, you have to say where you got, uh, where it relates to a biological resource, you have to say where you got that resource, what the origin was, and do you have an agreement? Do you have legal provenance of that resource? So there's there's potential for things like that in intellectual property law as well. And then in other countries like New Zealand, they have Maori advisory committees on trademarks and patents where, where things might be culturally offensive to, to claim a patent right on, say, Manuka honey, mm. which is, you know, of very, very significant interest commercially. Then Maori experts can comment on those applications as they come in. Yeah, so there's a few different areas where people are, are sort of working on on these issues. Yeah, right. Sounds really interesting and really complicated. Um, I wonder, so we talked about biopiracy, we talked about the institutions and regulations. What about the impacts? I know that each Indigenous community and their local knowledge is quite unique. So what are the impacts of biopiracy on indigenous people of Australia and can you tell ways to compensate for these impacts? Mm. Yeah, I mean, in Australia, we're looking at a bunch of uh, case studies where we're concerned about the use uh, and the development of new products and filing of patents relating to indigenous knowledge and, and, and uses of plants. There, there are definite potential impacts. Um, one that we've worked on is Kakadu, relates to Kakadu plum. That's the common name. It's the scientific name's Terminalia Ferdinandiana. And it has a number of indigenous names like Gubbinge and Mimaral in, in the Wadea region. So we we are obviously concerned about what, what impacts there will be if, if people file for, for intellectual property rights on these things. So there's commercial activity with, with some of these bush foods and medicines. With Kakadu Plum particularly, there was an application by a US company called Mary Kay Company, and they filed in a number of jurisdictions for a patent. In, and one of them was Australia. We noticed this while it was in the application phase. So we filed a submission of evidence. I contacted a number of Aboriginal corporations and, and enterprises and interested parties, you know, Indigenous um, people. And a, a number of sent letters to the company itself, but we also filed evidence about the uses of Kakadu Plum in, in existing industry as well as traditional uses. Um, so there are a number of enterprises that were already using it, um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous in Australia. And they were using it in food type products or as additives. So Kakadu Plum is one of the world's highest sources of vitamin C. And as such, it has antioxidant qualities. And so the, the company, Mary Kay company that had filed it, they were talking about using it in a cosmetic cream. And what happened was we found that there were a couple of companies already doing that in Australia. And so that defeated the novelty claim in the pat patent application. Mm. And it also we also kind of questioned the inventive step as well, which, which we saw the, the patent examiner reports, which also sort of agreed with us that it wasn't clear that there was a, an inventive step because they, there was existing Indigenous knowledge on some uses of, of the 
the Kakadu Plum, and that's not always well documented. So Indigenous people don't always tell everyone what what their knowledge is, with good reason. But you know, it was certainly documented by some anthropologists and and scholars, historians, etc. And so it was clear that the, there was Indigenous uses of Kakadu Plum for as a high energy food, and possibly in some skin care uses. Mm. And so ultimately, that patent rejected by IP Australia and then it was withdrawn by the company. But since they've pursued the patent in other countries and it's been granted in the US or a version of that. So there's concern about that, obviously. And the, I guess the impact in Australia is about that would have that would have placed a monopoly on and restrictions on the trade in Australia. So there are a number of Indigenous enterprises that are doing really interesting work on, on Kakadu Plum and Gubbins these days. There's a group supported by the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, which is called NACPA, and they're, they're a number of Kakadu Plum producers, uh, Aboriginal producers that, that are making a real go of it, that are, that are getting new markets and uh, selling to a number of different uh, bigger companies and, and selling their own processed goods as well. So I think that would have been restricted had Mary Kay maintained that patent. So it's kind of by, re- by reducing that uh, opportunity for a monopoly, it's let the market flourish for Kakadu Plum. And so that's what we want to see with other bush foods and medicines. We don't want them to be inhibited by intellectual property. We also want the Indigenous knowledge and innovation contribution to be respected. And, and then with other species, sometimes there's cultural concerns about the, the, the patenting of of species too. So there can be there can be strong cultural concerns about species where they might be, say, a totemic species, or there might be customary law and kinship responsibilities to those species. And there's one called Gumby Gumby where we've seen that where there's a creation or a dreaming story associated with with Gumby Gumby in central Queensland. I think it's the Yurundali people. So there's a I believe, you know, there, there would be concerns about activity relating to that particular species as well yeah right hmm. it seems to me rights of indigenous group to their cultural resources are often ignored how effective do you think current international and national intellectual property is protected by the western legal system I think pretty poorly to date. I think there's a there's a huge gap there. There's a lot of work to be done. I think, you know, Indigenous rights to knowledge, you know, are quite poorly recognised in international and national law. It's only really through some of these mechanisms like the Nagoya Protocol. But obviously, you know, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is, is sort of a key piece of international law that, that does recognise that. But the extent to which state nation states enforce that declaration, that, that's a big problem, basically. So, yeah, I mean, there are, there are obviously heaps of challenges. This is an ongoing struggle. And, and I think intellectual property law really has a long way to go. And there are international forums like in the World Intellectual Property Organization where there's this intergovernmental committee on IP and genetic resources, traditional knowledge and folklore. It's a very long, long title. Mm. That's been that negotiation's been going on to to develop unique laws to protect traditional knowledge and cultural expressions. That's been going on for 20 years. It started in 2000. 
And it's, it's quite a fraught negotiation because it's represented by state parties. They're the ones negotiating. And Indigenous people are invited and often funded to come, but they're there kind of as observers. So there's, there's a power imbalance in that negotiation, and it's, it's obviously problematic. So even though there's, there's recognition of this and there's ongoing negotiations, there is still some way to go. Australia is actually currently the chair of that negotiation and has been open-minded about some of the new options like a patent disclosure of origin requirement. So that's good to see Australia in, in a role talking about these things. But, it, but it's a difficult negotiation to get consensus among all those countries. Mm. And, and we've often, we often have countries like the US or Japan that, that don't want to yield to some of these suggestions to change patent law, for example. Are there any examples of countries doing it well? You mentioned Australia. What is the best practice or the, you know, the example, like the best example for it? <laughs> good, like very good role. question. <laughs> yeah, the, there's, it's hard to say. People do sometimes look at Australia as a country that was an early adopter. So Australia, under the Convention on Biodiversity, developed some, some access and benefit sharing biodiversity laws. And, but it's piecemeal in Australia, so I don't want to sing Australia's praises too much. So we, we do have a number of state and territory laws that have some of those requirements, but it's sort of the Northern Territory. Um, Queensland has just reformed their law and the Commonwealth, and then the other states and territories haven't done much at all. Western Australia has, and they've been trying to get a new bill passed, but it still has some way to go, I think. And so it's quite piecemeal in Australia, so I'm, I'm not... I'm not really, you know, I don't want to say too much about Australia. I think, I think we've still got a long way to go. Mm. I think countries like New Zealand have done interesting things. I think those um, patent and trademark advisory committees are a really good idea because it, what it can mean is that applications don't even go through. They go back to the applicant and then they reconsider. And, and if it's culturally offensive or inappropriate, it may not even get submitted again. So I think that's a good starting point too. There are, there, are, there are some examples globally. Uh, I did a book about access and benefit sharing cases where, where there's good individual cases and where there's, there's good agreements and where there's, there's quite a bit of benefit sharing. And obviously it's subjective about what's good and bad. You know, we had, we had I did a case study on Moroccan argan oil and, and this has been a problematic case study actually for many years. But the, there are a couple of value chains that are interesting because the companies involved shared quite a lot of benefits. They recognised uh, a contribution of the Amazigh people towards the, the Indigenous knowledge of Moroccan argan oil. So there's something like a thousand years of Amazigh knowledge of the uses of, of that oil for, for skin care, hair care, but also as a food. You can use the oil as a food product. And that thousand years or more, you know, it, it's something like a thousand years of knowledge was recognised in, in some agreements set up by a number of companies. L'Oreal was involved, a company called Cognos was involved, which has become BASF, a big German chemical company. And then also the Body Shop was involved because Body Shop was bought by L'Oreal. So, you know, it, with, it, with an example like the Body Shop, they, they have a clear sort of message that they want to do community fair trade and all that sort of thing. Some of those companies, we do sort of look to them to to lead the way a bit in, in to to help industry understand that there is a need to recognise the indigenous knowledge and contributions over in you know 
in that case, thousands of years, or at least a thousand years. So that that was it. That's a quite a good example. There's a lot of benefits to the women's cooperatives in Morocco from that one, from that agreement. But in that in that particular case, Morocco doesn't actually have a specific biodiversity law to protect those rights. What it does have is a UNESCO protection on that area, which does slightly different things and recognizes customary law of, of the Amazigh people and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so there's this scattered examples like that that are that are you know you would say are fairly positive, but it, yeah, it's there's not universal sort of examples that I would say where countries are doing a really good job. It's it's quite complicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea of patenting nature is really strange to me, especially the commercialization process and trying to gain a private property monopolies over biological resources is just yeah it is really strange are there any dangers of patenting seeds for example yeah i think i think there are and i think it, it's about food sovereignty so the un likes to talk about food security which is sort of about access to to food and food markets and that sort of thing um food sovereignty is about control over the agricultural you know production and and supply chains etc so you know as as big agro industry globally consolidates and that's that's a trend over the last sort of 40 50 years is that big industry keeps consolidating so bayer recently acquired monsanto so two giants recently merged and we're seeing that a lot with with this and what happens is their their intellectual property portfolios come with them that's all negotiated in those big deals so we see the concentration of all this intellectual property patent claims plant variety protection claims over plant varieties and and agricultural products in in a few really big companies and that affects food sovereignty because farmers are often convinced by the companies or convinced by packages Sometimes they're convinced by their own governments. It started with the Green Revolution, which again Vandana Shiva talked about uh, over you know recent decades. It's been going on for a long time. Farmers get convinced to do to sign on to some of these contracts, and then they're stuck in a cycle. And often they get stuck in a debt cycle. They have to buy the seeds every year. They have to buy the the chemical inputs, the the fertilizers and pesticides. So there's a food sovereignty concern and there are a number of movements globally about food sovereignty. There's the slow food movements and Via Campesina and, you know, there's a lot of activists who are concerned about food sovereignty and and patenting seeds is is part of that broader concern, I think. I, I just had a, I just remembered there's a few interesting concerns globally as well by company, uh, countries too. So Bolivia, with their new constitution, or relatively new constitution, have, have spoken out strongly about the, the cultural and ethical concerns about patenting seeds. So as a government, they've actually commented on these things. And even the African group in negotiations have, have kind of said that it's ethically, culturally, morally concerning that we're allowing planned patents. So yeah, they, they, it's not without precedent that, that countries even are concerned about this, this trend. From what I understand, indigenous communities' connection to land is quite different from Western understanding. On the one hand, the plant is part of and connected to us. And on the other hand, it may be seen only as a resource. Is 
Western understanding and indigenous thoughts so far apart that is irreconcilable. What is needed to bridge the gap? Yeah, that's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, you were right. The, particularly, we we talk to communities in the Pacific, for example, about their conceptualization of nature and and their their beliefs and their indigenous laws and customary laws relating to you know the plants and animals around them, their, to to their ecology, to to the species they interact with and that they use and you know, there's quite a lot of customary law or indigenous law about these plants. And often it, it links back to stories. Often it's told through um, stories which link back to belief or creation stories. And, for example, taro, the taro plant in Hawaii, for the Hawaiian people, there, there's a genealogical chant about taro, the taro plant and, and how taro was born of, of their gods and and planted into the earth and and grew out of the earth and is kind of and, and as such is kind of seen I'm not telling it very well there's a there's a, there's a very long story but the, the the story actually is really interesting to read the, the genealogical story is it means that Taro is considered like the older brother of the Hawaiian people so it's it has a really significant place in their culture and I think I think it's important for people to understand that that, that there are there may not be the same ownership beliefs among those peoples but they might also have rights and responsibilities that are different to ownership so i think i think we need to think critically about property and property rights and intellectual property as part of that so a lot of people say that indigenous people you know didn't have property rights in the same sense but i think what we need to understand is that there were relationships based on beliefs and, and customary law, Indigenous law, and there were rights and responsibilities. And, and often it's the responsibilities people had. So, so sometimes people, if it was a totemic species, they had a kinship responsibility to that species. And people have talked about, you know, totemic species as a way of thinking, uh, to, to try, getting try, people to try and think in, in that sort of space would help us bridge some of this ideological difference, you know, and I think there's something to that. I think that I don't, I don't want to, as a non-Indigenous person, I don't want to, to speak across that Indigenous space. But I think totemic species are a really interesting example. And if Indigenous people wanted us to, to look at totemic species as, an op, as, a, as a way of connecting with nature and having different relationships to nature, I think that would be really productive and interesting. I think the Western philosophical practice of thinking and the objectification and that enables commodification, whereas in the indigenous practices, it's more the kinship relationship, as you said. Mm. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. there's the respect and the reciprocity is, is just uh, are lacking. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of these frameworks that we have in terms of property rights are set up for commodification and marketization of of the resource and and we have to remember this these resources are living things talking about plants and animals um, i've talked mostly about plants but sometimes we're also talking about animal species and you know we've these have their own intrinsic rights and and uh, to exist and all those sorts of things and, and are important for humanity globally 
for biodiversity, for ecosystem services, you know, you can even put a utilitarian frame on it. They're important for biodiversity, they're important for food, they're important for ecosystem services, but they're also important intrinsically and culturally. Mm. Yeah. 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 Since you started working in this field, how has your research and understanding evolved? In other words, how working in this field has changed you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think more and more I'm working with and authoring with Indigenous colleagues and scholars and, and even people in the field in, in working in different spaces. And I think for me it, it is about recognising Indigenous law. Like I've had a bit of an awakening. I think, I think as sometimes the Australian education system has been really poor and really crappy at, at recognising Indigenous histories. In Australia, you know, we have we have a lot of colonial baggage in Australia, and and only relatively recently, I think, are we really opening up to to all the damage that's been done in Australia, mm. and trying to do something about that through you know the stolen generations and and massacres and and all that dark history that we have. That that there's a, there's a there's an awakening I think happening in Australia gradually. I don't know how fast it's happening. Some people faster than others. And, and I think for me, it, I, I'm really interested in, in Indigenous law and customary law that, that there have been, you know, for thousands of years, 40,000 years, we, we don't know, maybe much longer than that. You know, Indigenous beliefs about country, about land, about country, sea country, sky country, and, and dreaming stories, dreamings, uh, and even Indigenous law about, about these histories. And I think that's really important for us to to understand and, and get to know better and to embrace embrace those histories and, and that, that story, to learn more about Indigenous law, Indigenous dreamings and connections to country. Like I think I think there's a lot to learn there. And and I'm still learning and I think a lot of us are still learning. It's an exciting time. I think I think there's an awakening happening to some extent. Yeah, true. Hmm. How can individuals listening respect Indigenous intellectual property and develop an ethic of reciprocity? Yeah, that's another really good question. Yeah, like I said, I think that the idea about to- totemic species and about totems is, is an interesting one, which might help people. If they can think about that and, and relate to that, then that might help this ethic of reciprocity, definitely. And and learning more about indigenous law and indigenous customary law indigenous history i think would would also help with these ideas of reciprocity learning more about indigenous connections to country would definitely help and and i think unpacking this idea of property and intellectual property as as part of that sort of idea of property rights is also really important you know thinking about why we've set up these institutions and how they operate and and what they do and what we lose from constantly commodifying and and marketizing things. So yeah, I think stepping back from from property and thinking about it in the bigger bigger context is also really important um, to recognize that there are other ethics, other sort of rights and responsibilities that we can have about biological resources, you know, biological world basically, not not resources, but the biological world. So so parts of nature, plants and animals. Yeah. Daniel, I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
No worries. Thanks. I hope it's useful and interesting. Thanks a lot. For this episode, I'd like to say special thanks to Bonnie Paris for editing the script and Chris Jofortis for his technical support. I'm Danny Zildes and thank you for listening.